Genesis 1, the second half. We started last week, and I'm going to reference a few things so you won't be lost if you were out of town for Mother's Day. Genesis 1, verse 14 to the end. Let me start like this. Uh, A number of years ago, actually while I was in seminary, at the seminary that I attended, a world-renowned journalist, British journalist and atheist writer, Christopher Hitchens, um, held a debate at the school that I went to up in Glenside, Pennsylvania, uh, with another Christian pastor about whether Christianity is good for the world. Um, some, some of you might know his work. He died about 10 years ago. Um, but like really, really well respected among the atheist community, right there with you know, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris over recent decades. And in the debate about Christianity, it came to a point where they were discussing the miracles of Jesus. And uh, Christopher Hitchens said, even if the miracles of Jesus were true, and he doesn't believe that they all are, but he said, even if the miracles of Jesus were true, they're not very impressive, he said. For example, he took the example of Jesus casting demons into pigs at the beginning of Mark chapter 5. And he said, this was nothing more than, I'm quoting now, a piece of sorcery and cheap magic of the sort that shouldn't impress any thinking person. And so then he went on to talk about things in the universe that are actually impressive. He said something very interesting. He said, if I were to die of a terminal illness, which he actually did four years later, he said, if I were to die of a terminal illness and I was somehow granted my wish of how I wanted to go out, I would choose to go out looking over the lip of the event horizon of a black hole. The event horizon is the, the, kind, of, kind of the lip, if you're approaching a, the black hole, where the black hole begins sucking everything into itself, including light. And so the theory goes, as I understand it, even time slows down because of what gravity does to like just the space-time fabric. And in theory, you can see past and future stretched out in front of you. And like all nature even being subsumed in this area. And he said, that is truly awe-inspiring. That would be the way that I want to go out. The really ironic thing about that statement, um, well, well, what's he doing? First of all, what's he doing? He's delighting in the beauty of what he sees around him. And the irony of that is, in the scriptures, you see the Trinity God delighting in exactly the same way over creation. Last week, we looked at this passage from Proverbs 8. And Victor, I think there's a slide for this. Proverbs 8, there's this song. And in the second half in particular, there's this person that's identified as wisdom, wisdom personified, that says, I was there with God at the beginning. And the early church understood this as a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And listen to the song that the Trinity's singing with one another. Then I was beside him, the creator God, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Wherever you are with people who don't believe what you believe, it's worth noting and not oversimplifying points of agreement. Delight is one of them. 
Things are spectacular out there, however terrible they also are. They're delightful. The question we bring to this text and the question that Genesis 1 really begins to answer in the second half of the chapter is, what does it mean? It's there. This is what we looked at last week. It's ordered and it's delightful. But what is it for? Does it require any response from us at all? People of faith have always said, yes, it does. There's a meaning, and it's not just the meaning that we arbitrarily ascribe to it. This all means something and requires something of us. It's not for nothing that this is where we get the first commandments proper in the Bible. This is what it is. Now do something with it. It's actually for something. Before I go any further, I want to do a very brief 30-second review of stuff we looked at from last week. So, Victor, if you can show me this. Okay, so last week, in verses 1 through 13, you see in the structure of Genesis 1, days 1 through 3, there's the creation of light, the formation of skies and seas, the separation of the water, and then the clearing away of waters to create space for dry land. So their general heading for the first three days, scholars have often noted, is forming. The first three days, there's this structure to it. God's clearing out space and organizing space so that people can possibly live there. And in the next four days comes the filling, the creation of luminaries. We get into, in the video with Victor, I got into a little bit last week. We're not the first ones. We're not the first ones in this millennia. We're not the first ones in the last two millennia that say, hey, how did the sun get there before light? What's happening? Join the conversation. I'm not going to get into it all today. But what we see is the filling, and you see there's a correspondence here. The filling of day four corresponds to the creation of day one in particular. It says in uh, Genesis 1 that the sun and moon, these luminaries, are in the expanse, or arguably on the other side of the sky. So that space is being filled up. Day five, the day two space that was created, is being filled up. Day five corresponds to day two. So you have birds in the skies, sea creatures in the seas. And then day six, of course, is corresponding to day three, the formation of dry land Day six is corresponding in this song to the things that can inhabit the dry land, creeping things, beasts, livestock, and then human beings. So in days four through six, you can take that down, Victor, and if anybody wants that, I can send it along to you later in the week in a visual form. So in days four through six, we see this filling, but what I really want to talk about this morning are the things on day four through six, when these Animate creatures start showing up. Not just waters, not just dry land and vegetation, but these things which the Israelites called the Ruach Elohim creatures, the breath of God creatures, and the Nefesh Chayah creatures, the living beings. God has a relationship with his animate creation that he doesn't have with his inanimate creation. I'm going to give you two things that we see in the second half of Genesis 1 that describes this special relationship. First, we see creation being blessed. It doesn't happen till day four. That's very interesting. The Bible is full of blessing. This is the first one. 
and it tells us something about every other blessing in the Bible. Creation is blessed, and then secondarily, creation is crowned. It's all leading to something, and we get that at the very end. First, creation is blessed. We get the verb blessed in verse 22. It says, and God blessed them. He's talking about the swarms of sky and sea creatures now. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Okay, And we get it again in verse 28 in reference to humans. God blesses humans as well. But first, birds and sea creatures. What is a blessing? This is actually kind of important. What is it? Christians say this all the time. If you're not a Christian, you're around Christians, they say something, they say stuff like, God bless you, or I had a blessed day. There's even a pretty popular hashtag that goes around, hashtag blessed. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I just had an amazing brunch, hashtag blessed. Or I had a great date, or I, I got a new car, or just things are going well. That is not what it means to be blessed. Mainly, it can incorporate that stuff, sure. The verb here, barak, blessed, means to kneel. It's really interesting, to kneel. When we bless God, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, we're kneeling, body and soul. You are beautiful, we have affection for you, you are an authority, we bless you. But God's blessing creation here, right? We see this all over the Bible, Genesis 12. He blesses Abram so that he'll go out and his seed will to bless all the ends of the earth. Kneel. How is God kneeling? Well, he doesn't exactly. Stay with me here. When God blesses, he's not kneeling. But what's, what's similar? Why is it the same word? There is a condescension on God's part. He's bowing to us. He's leaning down to serve. He's meeting us. We're bowing to him, looking up. He's leaning down to meet us. You ever see a picture of somebody getting knighted? Like an old, well, I mean, I guess it still happens. Like Elton John has been knighted now. But like you kneel and like a, a monarch will like put the sword on both Shoulders. It's kind of like that. Blessing in the Bible is kind of like that, except for it's way more affectionate. It's like a kiss of communion. And it's a prayer, um, but it's also imparting something. It's giving something, and it includes a commission, a going out. It's not just a good wish. It's not just a good wish. It's an authoritative Word, you're in communion with me now in an applied commission. Go and do, therefore. You're with me, I love you, and you're for something. This is also the first command proper. And I want to draw some attention to this too. So in the first three days, you get commands like let there be. Let there be nothing, let it turn into something. So that's kind of a command. This is the first command proper. That's like, you exist now, now I command you to go do something. And it's not an accident that comes right after a blessing. You're in communion with me now, birds and fish. Now I got a command for you. Multiply and fill. 
my good world. It's a commission. A couple implications for this. In addition to God interacting with animate creatures in ways that he doesn't with, like, the sun and the moon, it's also the first sign that this creation we're reading about in Genesis 1 was not supposed to be static or stagnant. It's supposed to develop. It's supposed to go somewhere. Creation needs to be worked out through blessing and command. It's the first time we see this. Let's not lose that. And we'll get there in a moment when we get to point two. But to the animals, he says, be fruitful and multiply. To the human beings, he adds one. Be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue. This is what we get about human beings in verses 26 through 28. That gives the sense that this good and very good creation needs to be better fit, better settled somehow for the many more lives to come. Okay. One application here, folks, about blessing. What is blessing again? It's not just a wish. It's not just having things going well for you. It implies relationship, and it is a spiritual impartation, a commissioning. I really want to give this to you who have any kind of authority in the world, as a parent, as a spouse, as a mentor, as a boss, as a neighbor, that there are things here that are imparted when you bless someone, and this is maybe the harder thing, there are times when it must be withheld because it would be dishonest to give it. A blessing is the kiss of communion. It's saying, I'm with God by his grace, not because I'm good or great. I'm with God, and through God, I'm with you. And I bless you. I share communion. I celebrate that I have it with you. There's a prayer embedded in that that will be for your covering and your blessing with God, however good your date or your brunch or your week is, that you will have the same communion with God and that you will go and flourish in his will. Friends, when you parents say this to your children, it is a covering. I'm not going to eradicate all the mystery here but you're doing more than just wishing that they be protected. You're using authority, derivative authority, to say, I bless you by the authority God has given me. I don't waste that authority by ignoring you. You have my kiss of communion, now go and be covered. And it's doing the exact same thing when a spouse, spouses, I want you to, in the name of God, begin blessing each other as you leave the house. Put your hand on the other person. And don't just wish them a good day and say, yeah, God bless you. Almost like it's a throwaway line, like we don't even know what we're saying, but saying, I, I reestablish communion with you for your flourishing in the name of God, and I pray his protection on you, and I encourage you to go forth in his will. And to your friends. You can imagine, we can read between the lines, think times you would want to withhold this. If your friends are rushing into disaster to unleash something terrible in their lives or someone else, you do not bless. But blessing was there from the beginning. We're joining in it. Okay, that's point one. And secondly and finally, creation is crowned. I think you're going to see what I mean here. This is verses 26 through 28. 
8. Let me reread it. Then God said, we're in day 6 now, the end of day 6. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the image of God. You know, there's all this language throughout the chapter so far. According to their likeness, he made them. According to their likeness, he made the creeping things and the birds and the, and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. It's always according to its likeness, according to its likeness, according to its likeness. Why? Because when you get to human beings, it's not according to its likeness. It's according to the likeness of another. It was not a waste after that was written something like nine times earlier in chapter one. This is in the likeness of God, and my goodness, have Christians spilled ink on what in the world this means, that human beings are made in the image of God. I'm gonna give you a few things that I think are careful and pretty universal when people wanna honor the integrity of the text here, of what it means to be in the image of God. A few things, first, people have often referred to reason Different than the animals, we are able to reason, to dialogue, to problem solve on another level. That's where some people stop, and that's a terrible mistake, but it's there. Secondly, embodied as male and female. This is big. Whatever else it means to be made in the image of God, the text is very careful to tease out. Male and female, he created them both in his image. This means a number of things. One individual is made in the image of God, for sure. We see that worked out across scripture. One individual is in the image of God, but also, somehow, two sexes are essential to God's image-bearing intent in the world, both are totally necessary in their similarity and their difference to image forth and reflect the majesty of all that God is. Men and women together are image, even though any one individual is also image. People have recognized there's cultivation here. Just as God creates, he's also sending people out into the world to keep creating. More of that in chapter two. It actually gets way more clarified in chapter two. But finally, the thing that's abundantly clear is this dominion. Did you see that? Verse 28, subdue the creation and have dominion over everything. Some people take this and use it to insult you know, both Jews and Christians who look to this text authoritatively and say, this is, this is Christian's justification for the rape of the earth tearing the world apart because they think they're little rulers. How dare they? That's not what this means at all. It means in the service of God who created everything very good, 
we steward it like no other creature does wisely. But without doubt, you're a ruler, and you're a ruler, and you're a ruler, and you're a ruler, and you are. You're a king. You're a queen that God set up on purpose like no other creature under the heavens to bless and oversee the outworking of creation. And this is really radical, I think, in ways that we've lost. There's a guy named Lawrence Farley who noted that in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for kings to be understood to be in the image of God, like actual monarchs over nations and people groups. They thought of themselves often not only as image bearers of God, but as gods. But Genesis does something different. Genesis says, laboring, normal, average men and women and children. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, everywhere was created to rule the earth in God's name. And that's one of the gifts of this text to the world. It's not an overstatement historically. Finally, folks, crown. Why do we call it a crown? Well, one of the things that's really clear in this text is that everything has been building to humanity. The light, the waters, the land, the luminaries, the birds, the fish, the beasts. It's all building up to human beings. And there's a few ways we know this is going on. The first thing is, in the text, in verse 26, it's the only time out of the six days of creation that God actually deliberates before he, he makes anything. Like every other time, he's just like, let there be, let there be, let there be. In verse 20, 26, it, it's like he's deliberating. Let us make man in our image before he actually does it. So it's like slowing down to accent the importance of it. One other way that we know this is happening is back on day four in verse 14. It says that the lights, the sun and the moon and the other luminaries, are for signs and for seasons. What that means is it's not talking about like summer, fall, winter, spring seasons. It's speaking in the original Hebrew about religious festivals. What Genesis 1 is saying is when you look at the stars and the moon and, and the other spheres in the heavens, what you are seeing are things that are there to help human beings operate, in part. They're beautiful for their own sake. They display the glory of God for their own sake. But Genesis 1 says they are for human beings mainly. The sun is. Nothing else like this under creation. And I hope when you get to this point, you see like how off in the view of Genesis a Christopher Hitchens is. To say, I would rather be on the lip of an event horizon of a black hole watching the miracle of gravity slow time down than watch a human being be freed from de demon possession. And Jesus Christ turns that right around and says the opposite is true. This is your savior. This is the image of God being rehabilitated, and there is nothing more beautiful or valuable in the cosmos. That's Genesis 1.
That's Genesis 1. In human beings, we see God's glory more clearly than we do in the stars. And Jesus saw it in everyone. Jesus was the original image of the invisible God. We're actually going to have to get into that next week. You don't treat the image of God in one sermon. He's described in Colossians 1 as the image, the original image of the invisible God through whom all things were made. And then when he gets here and takes on flesh, he's walking around and he sees the image of God in everyone. Let me just give you a few examples. Jesus ministered to the educated elites as well as the illiterate masses. He indiscriminately, maybe that's the wrong word, indiscriminately, he knew what he was doing, broke bread with the poor and sipped fine wine with the rich. He came for everyone. But the people who called Jesus their friend were not those we might deem to be worthy of it. The laudable or hashtag blessed often ignored him. The destitute beggars with no family support. The rich tax collectors who betrayed the trust of their neighbors and even one time a zealot who we might today deem a terrorist. He found them and in him they found life. And in him they got the image back. Now, theologians, the vast majority of them across the centuries have said, when sin entered into the world, the sin that we both participate in and has power over us, sometimes that's described as sins plural and sin capital S. We participate in it, but we're also enslaved to it. It something like mars or degrades or fractures the image, but doesn't lose it altogether. And when Jesus comes back, he brings the full forgiveness through his life and death and resurrection and also by his Holy Spirit, the rehabilitation that starts now. This is why Paul knows he's still not sinless when he says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. What's he saying? He's not saying you're a sinless, perfected human being. He's saying the promise is as sure as done, even though it's not experienced yet, that he's bringing it all all back, all the way back. You can count on it now, even though you don't taste it all yet. It's what he came to do to everyone, and he's still doing it. And the image bearers, I don't care if this sounds old hat. I mean, God help us in one way or another if we don't say it every week. You're in the image of God, every one of you. And Kevin, other people in this congregation know his name. I had to learn it much slower. Should have learned it earlier. At York and Aramingo, who looks like he's about 85 when he's only about 65, is an image bearer every day out there as we pass him. And in the womb are image bearers. And in the prisons are image bearers. And the work of the Holy Spirit is making that very true foundational reality before God and really for the health of our civilization come alive. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Vito Ayuto, he led an outfit called the Welcome Wagon for a while, sang a song called, well, I forget the name of it, but here's the line. 
I've climbed Machu Picchu in Peru. I've visited the Parthenon in Rome. I've watched it snow in the deep woods of rural Michigan. But nothing is as beautiful as a human being. I think he could add, I've lingered over the event horizon. But nothing is as beautiful as a human being. Irenaeus of Leon, late second century, early third, said, the glory of God is a human fully alive. Friends, it's not an overstatement. What a person is, really is the cornerstone of our very imperfect civilization. And if we lose it, and that all cracks, this will still be true that a human being is worth this much, the life of the Son of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.